welcome to Nothing Ever Happens in Canada, but we know this is simply not true. This is a Canadian podcast about the myths, legends, and just good old stories Canada has to tell. I'm Canadian Girl. Thanks for joining me today. How's everybody doing? I've been sitting back a little longer than I should be, enjoying these last few minutes of summer as long as I can. I've also been doing some online shopping at the Nothing Canada Souvenir Shop as there is free shipping on now until September 22nd. All you have to do is use the code in the show notes below to receive that awesome deal. I just ordered myself a Canadian Girl zip-up hoodie and a What the Maple Syrup long sleeve shirt. I can't wait to receive them in the mail. Do head over to the souvenir shop today and grab these amazing deals to take on your next adventure and take advantage of the free shipping that's on now. To find the link, see the show notes below. To my wonderful Patreons, Kevin, Jennifer, Bailey, Chris, the Into the Portal podcast team, Bonnie, and Vanessa, I thank you very much for joining me on all these extra adventures over on my Patreon page, like this tale today. Without the Lost Lemon Mine crew, we would not have the ending to this tale, but thanks to them and all their hard work, we found it. Join myself and my amazing crew members on the adventure of your choice over on our Patreon page. The link, like always, is in the show notes below. Today we are going to meet one of Canada's greatest artists, Tom Thompson. His work is known by most, and he is often mistaken as being a part of the famous Group of Seven in Canada's art world. But, in fact, he would inspire them with the love he had for his Algonquin Park, especially around the Canoe Lake area where some of his greatest pieces of art were inspired from. He was considered by most to be an untrained painter at best. To others, he had his own style, making him known affectionately as the Van Gogh of Canada. Like Van Gogh, Thompson would struggle with his relationships and finding his place in the world. This struggle early on in life would leave Thompson with a temper that just may have cost him his life. That's right, this tale has it all. Art, history, murder, mystery, all going down late at night in the woods of Algonquin Park along Canoe Lake. Grab your gear, those detective hats, as we go hiking through one of Canada's most beautiful provincial parks in search of clues of what really happened to Tom Thompson on Canoe Lake back in 1917. Trigger warning. For this episode, we do mention events dealing with murder and briefly mention suicide in this episode. But I will warn you before the suicide mention comes up. And the murder is a part of the story. So if this isn't a good tale for you, please skip this one and head out on another adventure. That being said, you know me. I will not say anything in great detail, only what needs to be said. Tom would begin life in 1877 on August 5th in Claremont, Ontario. His parents, Margaret and John Thompson, had nine children, and Tom would be their sixth. The family would move to Leith, Ontario, which is about 10 kilometers north of Owen Sound. The old farmhouse where he once lived still stands today on top of the hill, overlooking a farm as it did when Tom was there. It is said, even as a boy, he never quite fit in with most. 
He was shy, he didn't really know what he wanted to do, and he always seemed to struggle with that. He would be diagnosed at a young age with a breathing problem, and back then, the best medicine for this ailment was fresh country air, prescribed by the doctor. So Tom would spend most of his childhood amongst the trees and the rivers, really anywhere outdoors. He loved drawing and sketching at a young age, though he was not very good at it. This is something that never changed. Even as an adult and a growing artist, drawing was never Tom's strong feature. He wanted to be a naturalist like his uncle, who he had helped collect many specimens for, and had watched his uncle conduct research out in the forest. He unfortunately did not have the funds needed to pursue the study, so he continued to struggle along with odd jobs. He never completed high school, and only had very little grade school he had completed. Plus, once diagnosed with a breathing condition, it made it very hard to go to school when you needed to be outside in the fresh air all day. A close family friend would offer Tom an apprenticeship at his machine shop in an iron factory when Tom was 22. Thompson would turn out to be a lousy employee and was constantly late for work and ended up being fired. He would then try to enlist in the Boer War, which was the first time troops were sent overseas in Canada. 7,000 Canadians would fight in South Africa. Thompson was denied entry to the war due to his health condition, and some say he also had really flat arches in his feet, which also put him on the no list. He would try to enlist three more times over his life. He was always denied. Just two years later, Tom would enroll in business school at 24 years old in Chatham, Ontario. But again, he would not stick to this ambition and dropped out after just eight months. After this, he headed to Washington. He would meet up with his brother George to help him run a business school. He would spend three years here and fall in love with a lady named Alice Eleanor Lambert, who was nine years older than him. One night, it's said he got down on one knee in front of everyone watching and asked for her hand in marriage. She giggled out of pure nervousness, and Thompson took it all the wrong way. He instantly was crushed, his heart dropped to the sidewalk, and he walked away from Alice. He never spoke or wrote to her ever again. In fact, he packed his bags and grabbed the first train out of Seattle, back to Canada. She would later write a book about their encounter. Tom would step off the train and begin again in Toronto, Ontario. This time, he got a job with a design firm in 1904, where he was a letterer, which is someone who puts fancy writing on pictures to finish up an ad. He began to discover his true love for creating art here. Feeling inspired, he began taking art lessons at 29 years old, and in 1906, at a local college under William Cruikshanks. Here, he learned basic skills and techniques to pursue his art career. He would take another job in 1907 as a designer, this time for an office called Grip Limited. Here he would meet some of the famous Group of Seven, which had not formed yet. He would go to another company in 1912, only to quit once and for all to start his career as an artist. He would remain close with the men he met at Grip Limited, who later would go on to become the Group of Seven members. They were also sometimes known as the Algonquin School. They would become a well-known group of Canadian artists inspired by Thompson and his love of nature in Algonquin Park. 
they would paint landscapes and inspire one of the first big movements in Canadian art, believing beautiful art could come from Canadian nature. That all happened after this story. In 1912, feeling left behind and again as everyone was off to war, he would take a job as a firefighter. In Algonquin Park, this choice would change his life and begin a never-ending connection between himself and his newfound beloved park. Thompson instantly could see the beauty of the park, a beauty that most did not see. Where people saw an old swamp with no life, Thompson saw Mother Nature's hard work and was able to pull it all out of the landscape and into his oil sketches. They were small rectangles of paper that he would carry around to capture his moments in time, and then take back to the studio and paint a masterpiece on canvas from his oil sketches. Some say he had over hundreds of those oil sketches. In 1913, things started to really turn around for Thompson. He sold his first painting, The Northern Lake, to the Canadian government of Ontario for $250. In today's money, that's about $6,300. He would also have his first exhibit this year with the Ontario Society of Artists and also meet Winifred Trainer, an adventurous lady who was seven years younger. The two were quite fond of each other right away, it said. Tom being an artist and not having a lot of money was staying in a tent along Canoe Lake, a place which he would return to often. Winifred, known as Winnie to all her friends, was at the lake for the summer with her family who owned a cabin. In 1914, he would return again to his beloved park, working as a guide. He would take members of the group of seven that year in the fall time to see the park and inspire them to see what he saw. They in turn would continue to teach Thompson more techniques. They considered him still to be very untrained although he had attended classes. There are rumors his teacher was not the best. Thompson was known to have a hot temper. If a painting was not going his way, he would throw everything, the easel, artwork, paint, and brushes, all into the bushes, only to come back and retrieve them once he had calmed down. Canoe Lake was truly his favorite location. He would return here every summer he could between 1912 and 1917. He would work during the winter in Toronto on commercial contracts in design and such so he could pay his rent back home in the summer months where he was living the good life on Canoe Lake where he explored his life as an artist. He would also complete most of his canvases based on the oil sketches he had took back in the summer months. He was able to look back and remember this amazing moment in nature and put it all down on canvas again thanks to his oil sketches. Some actually prefer his oil sketches to his final piece. They are said to be more emotional and raw as you can see the rushing in every stroke, trying to capture a moment before Mother Nature changes her palette tone. He would continue his relationship with Winnie and the two would go fishing together often. Tom loved fishing and often joked his paintings might not be worth much, but his fishing skills were top-notch. He was an avid canoeer and the pair were often seen on the lake together, where he could sketch from a different perspective, or of course, Tom was most likely fishing, and Winnie too. At this point in his life, he was in full artist mode. He became quite well known in the art community and the Algonquin Park area. 
Unknowingly to Tom, he was becoming a naturalist in his own sense, one who captured the natural world he loved so much, and he had spent so much of his time in. He knew how to capture the place that felt like home to him with every brushstroke, allowing those looking into his work to see what the forest really can look like if you spend a little time with it. He would travel again every year by train to Algonquin Park and set up camp near the Moat Lodge, where he befriended the owners Shannon and Annie Fraser, even selling them a painting that they still owed him money for. He was said to be shy, tall, always smoking a cigarette or a pipe, and according to author Roy McGregor, he had a similar vibe to James Dean. He was adventurous and mysterious all at the same time. Ladies loved him, and he knew it. He was often known to say he didn't want to settle down. He sometimes painted on birch panels that were pre-oiled, which helped in the painting process. His pieces captured so many unique and amazing colors that shows his exceptional talent, because in reality, back then, he only had a few colors to work with, and his technique used to mix these colors is what is so intriguing, draws you in, and captures a feeling to this day. Side note, Toronto's Rosedale Valley was one of Tom's favorite parks in the city back when he lived in Toronto. The area was less modernized then. He would paint many images from this area as well, though he is most famously known for his Algonquin Park work. He prided himself and claimed only to paint what was there, never trying to enhance his work. And if you compare some of the pictures from his many trips to the park and match them up with his paintings, you can clearly see he is telling the truth. That summer, he would sell another painting, this time to the National Gallery of Canada, his Northern River, for $500. Today, this is about $10,800. The National Gallery of Canada saw it at an exhibit he had held in 1915 and had to have it. Side note, this is my favorite painting. Funny thing, Tom would refer to it as his swamp picture. I'm actually going to purchase a print for my wall in the near future. I just love it so much. You feel as if you're standing just back from the riverbank in mid-fall, where the light opens up through the trees and you can see clearly down the river through the window of the trees. It's just so magical, it takes me back. I grew up in rural Ontario, and this picture just speaks to my soul. It will, of course, be in the show notes below so you can see it too. But back to Tom. Right when everything was starting to go his way, a chain of events would occur that still seems to be a mystery to this day. Some say Winnie confronted Tom and said basically, the best thing they could do was get married real soon, and he needed to buy a tux. In other words, back in 1917, this meant, and some people suspect, when he was pregnant. Tom, being the kind of man he was, seemed conflicted about the whole idea of settling down and being a father. Though he did not come out and say it, he chose to go drinking instead, like some of us do, when we want our problems to just shut up and go away for a minute. But unfortunately, this doesn't really work, and it didn't work for Tom either. He would attend a party on July 7, 1917, at George Rowe's cabin. While at the party, Tom already, having an off day, would get in an argument with a fellow party-goer, Martin Bleacher Jr. After annoying other party guests, the pair would be broken up, and Tom left the party by himself. This is the last time most people ever saw Tom alive. <laughs>
On July 8th, the next day after the party, it's alleged Tom set off in a canoe on the lake. There is another mention that he was last seen in the afternoon paddling near an island in the middle of Canoe Lake where people often portage and move on to the next area. After this, there are no accounts of him again. On Monday, July the 9th, his canoe was found. They knew it was Thompson's right away as he had painted it a very unique mixture of blue and gray. There was no sign of Thompson at all, just some gear, a gallon of maple syrup, and some jam. Cause we all know on this channel, all great true crime tales here in Canada start with maple syrup. Word would spread quickly that Thompson's canoe had been found, but the 39-year-old was still missing. By the next day, July the 10th, community members began searching for him. On Thursday, July the 12th, three days after his canoe was found, the Frasers, who owned the hotel and were friends of Tom's, would send a telegraph to Thompson's family that Tom was missing. Park ranger Mark Robinson would search a trail known to be ventured by Thompson often, but found no sign of him. George, one of Tom's older brothers, would arrive after receiving word from the Frasers. He gathered Tom's paintings and sketches and after only two days took off as if he already knew Tom was gone. On Monday, July 16th, at approximately 10 a.m., Dr. Goldwyn Howland, a neurologist of the University of Toronto, was a guest at the park when he stepped outside on his cabin's front porch to see something strange floating in the lake. He hollered to passing canoes to go have a look. They quickly identified it as a body and brought it to the shore. It was Tom, most certainly. He was the only one missing in the area at the time. A telegraph was quickly sent that the coroner would be needed at the park. Dr. Howland took it upon himself being a doctor to examine the situation. He noted that the corpse was very bloated from being in the lake for so many days. Approximately eight days Tom is thought to have been in the water. He was starting to decay and around the left ankle he found fishing line wrapped 14 to 16 times around. He also noted an injury to the left temple, although most stories nowadays claim it was to the right. When it was actually the left side, the mark can be seen and this is proven later. I do have a picture for you to see below. He was wearing a grey lumberjack shirt, khaki trousers, and canvas shoes. Some reports indicate blood was found in one of his ears, but some find this hard to believe after eight days in the lake. If there was indeed blood in his ears, this would point more towards a head injury. Dr. Howland said by his judgment at the time it appeared he had drowned. Dr. Howland's report can be seen in the book Canada's Greatest Mysteries by Peter Bohr. The coroner would arrive, Dr. Arthur Rainey. He didn't even do an autopsy to confirm anything. He simply read Dr. Howland's report. Some say he didn't even look at the body, some say he did. He simply agreed with what was written and left. It's said he never even filed a report about the event when documents were checked. So what happened to Tom? Meet Roy McGregor. I mentioned him earlier. He's a writer, journalist, and has a connection or two to the famous painter. His mother was born in a tent on Brule Lake in Algonquin Park. McGregor's grandfather was a ranger at Algonquin Park and knew Tom Thompson. 
and his grandfather's brother, Roy, which he is named after, was in fact married to Marie Trainer from Huntsville and Canoe Lake. She was Winnie's sister, so you can say, Roy McGregor has known about Tom Thompson since the time he could speak, he jokes. He points out that the whole thing screams foul play right away as to the fact he was never found with a paddle. If one canoes out on the lake, they always have a paddle, at least one. And the fact that one was never found screams murder to him. And I'd have to agree, that's a hard point to argue. There is a rumor of a scuffle the night before the party with a man known as the American Draft Dodger, who Tom never got along with. I have no proof of this, but judging by his name, I'd say with how badly Tom wanted to be drafted into the war, and this guy's nickname was the American Draft Dodger, this guy's nickname says it all. Some say Tom angered the man so much this time, he returned at some point to be rid of Tom once and for all. I don't believe this theory, but I understand it. Another rumor often whispered through the trees is that Tom got into a fight with the Frasers who owned the Moat Lodge that night when things turned extremely wrong. Rumors say somehow Tom ended up in the lake. The Lost Lemon Mine crew over on our Patreon page was able to uncover this secret with the help of Roy McGregor. So to find more details about what really happened with the Frasers on that fateful night, and more, head to the links below and join the Lost Lemon Mine crew today to uncover not only this secret, but another one that goes along with this tale. Another unpopular opinion is, please cover your ears or skip ahead for about two minutes. If thoughts of ending one's life are triggering to you, then hit the skip button now. Okay, if you're still with me, some say he committed suicide, not wanting to deal with the pregnancy, and he didn't want to settle down. Not only that, he didn't have a steady income. It was just all too overwhelming for him. People who argue against this theory say he left no note. One does not always leave a note in these times, so it's hard to say for sure. Many point to Martin Bleacher Jr., who Tom fought with at the party. He disappeared shortly after the event, adding to people's suspicion of his guilt. And he's been known to hit people with paddles out on the lake before, a possible weapon thought to have been used on Tom. There is even a crazy tale of foreign agents from Germany planning to blow up a railway when Tom stumbled upon them while wandering through the woods and had to be taken out. This one, though it is very creative, I don't believe it. So what weapon was used? A fist? A rock? Some say he might have been hit in the head with the paddle, and maybe that's why the paddle was never found. Most commonly, people say a gun, especially if you know the condition in which Tom's skull was found. We're getting there, I promise. Only one person claimed to hear a gun on the lake that night that Tom went missing. Dr. Howland, who first found Tom, and park ranger Robinson, neither one reported a gunshot on Tom's left temple. But he was extremely bloated, so was it too hard to tell? Was he in the water for too long? Another reason some suspect Tom was possibly shot by a gun, and it was covered up for some reason, was that Winnie Trainer requested to see the body before it was quickly decided it would be buried, and she was denied. She was his fiancée at the time. She had every right to make this request, and it should have been fulfilled.
1856, a skull would be found off Canoe Lake under a grave marked with a white cross, always believed to be Tom's. The story goes Winnie and Tom's family would arrange to have his bones moved back to his home in Leith, Ontario, to be placed in the family plot, but some believe this did not actually happen, until a local judge and his friends on Thanksgiving weekend would have a little too much to drink and decide to go look into the grave once and for all. What they found shook everyone, a skull which appeared to have a bullet hole in the left temple. People's worst fears had been confirmed. Tom had been murdered, but an anthropologist would quickly rule the skull was not Tom's at all at the time and that it belonged to a much younger indigenous man. The judge would go on to write a book and produce a documentary with CBC. You can watch it in the links below. Once again, thanks to our amazing Lost Lemon in Mind crew, they have uncovered not only what most likely happened to Tom that fateful night, thanks to a family secret passed on to a dear friend, we also know where Tom actually rests. Is it in the Leaf family plot, or is it still hiding next to the lake he loves so much? Head on over to our Patreon page to discover the hidden pieces to this tale after the show. The links of course will be down below. Until then, I leave this mystery with you and what we know. What do you think happened to Tom? Let me know, I'd love to know your theories. So what happened to Winnie? I can tell you she never married after Tom's death or had any children that we know of. Sadly, she did disappear for some time after Tom's death and spent some time in Philadelphia where Roy McGregor claims he believes she may have given up Tom's baby at a place for unwed mothers. Winnie, in my opinion, truly loved Tom. The fact that she never married anyone else, she kept all his oil sketches, and she had tons, never selling one. She also had dozens of his original canvases wrapped in newspaper and stored in one of those six-quart milk baskets. If she ever left her house to go on a vacation, it's said she would leave Tom's work with a friend, never leaving her beloved's work unattended. Today, Tom's small oil sketches can fetch as much as $250,000. Tom would bring the northern rocky landscape and forgotten trees of the forest to life in a way like no one else could, even though he was considered to be the untrained artist of the wilderness by those who knew him well. In 1991, our beloved Gord Downey from the band The Tragically Hip here in Canada would sing about Tom in the song Three Pistols. Please don't sue me. I'm a huge, huge fan. I've been to many concerts. I love and miss you dearly, and so does the rest of our country. Rest in peace, my friend. But back to Tom. For a man said to have trouble finding his way in life, one look at his work if you are Canadian and have ever been outside in our beautiful country will tell you right away he found his place in the world for sure. In a park he loved so much, 
Only he would be able to capture her beauty in that way. And though it was way too soon, I don't think Tom would want to go in any other place but his beloved park. And now, the two are forever linked in art, history, and a little bit of mystery. I'm Canadian Girl. Until next time, my friends. You guys who always listen to the very, very end, I hope summer's been awesome to you, because you're the raddest people out there. I'm Canadian Girl. Until next time, my friends. This podcast is a part of Straight Up Strange Productions. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com. At the beginning of this episode, I may have mentioned something about having a Patreon channel with crews for you to join, but I have come to find it was not the best course of action for this show. So if I did mention anything about Patreon, I apologize. That being said, if you do want to support the show, you can do that now in three simple ways. The first is the absolute easiest way and means the most. If you could kindly leave us a shiny five-star review on Apple Podcasts, this small gesture helps our show out so much by allowing us to move around on the podcast charts so we can meet more awesome listeners just like you. The second thing you can do is stop by our souvenir shop where you can pick up episode-themed gear. The shop has everything from t-shirts, sweatshirts, water bottles, cell phone cases, and more. Grab a souvenir today from your favorite adventure to take on your very own. The third and final way to support the show is by donation. We have an amazing PayPal button that you can find right at the top of our webpage at nothingcanada.com. Allows you to donate as much as you want, whenever you want, to the show. That way we can buy a new book for research, new equipment, pay for the show's website. You can find all the links to help support the show in the notes below. I thank you so very much for your support.